This week and next week, we're going to be talking about prayer. Not in the way we normally think about it or traditionally think about it, but in the ways that we regularly see God's people praying in the Bible. In other words, the way we should think about prayer. This week, we'll see Paul and Timothy. You see this we, whenever Paul says we here in Colossians, he's talking about he and Timothy. So we'll see Paul and Timothy and the different prayers that they have for the Colossian church. So this week, we'll see their prayer of thanksgiving, what it is that they are thankful for, and next week, we will see their prayer of petition. Both are a part of of the same explanation of Paul and Timothy's prayers for this church in Colossae. So as you study on your own, and I hope you do that, as we're going through this book, we're just going to be going sequentially, so read ahead. As you study on your own and talk about these passages together as families, I want you to think about how Paul and Timothy pray and how that might change the way that that we pray. Think about the things you normally pray for and why you pray for those things. And then compare that to what this apostle and his, and his very good friend are praying for. What moves them? What do they celebrate? What are they expecting to see God do? Well, this morning's text opens up in verse 3. As you're following there, we're going to start here in verse 3. This is our opening. And Paul and Timothy are declaring that they thank God when they pray for the Colossians. They thank God when they pray for the Colossians. Now, this seems obvious. It seems like almost a throwaway statement. But it's important, and we shouldn't overlook it. This prayer of thanksgiving from Paul and Timothy is rightly directed, and I want you to see that. When you go to somebody's house, and they, they cook a meal for you, and it's a good meal, would it be odd if afterwards you looked to the dog and said, thanks for dinner, buddy? It'd be odd, wouldn't it? It wouldn't make sense. Your thankfulness is rightly directed not to the dog, but to the cook or the host, the person who invited you in, the people who invited you and welcomed you into their home and they fed you. We thank the giver for the gifts that he gives or the gifts that she gives in those circumstances. When Paul and Timothy are praying for this church, notice what they do. They thank the giver. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 29 commands us that we should do likewise. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. In other words, we give credit where credit is due. If God is the giver, the one deserving of thanks, we give God the thanks. That's what Paul and Timothy do. If God is provided for you, church, If God has provided for you your daily bread and he's delivered you from temptation, thank him. If God has redeemed you, thank him. If the spirit is working in your life and he's making you more like Jesus Christ, thank God. If God has brought you through a trial or a dark season, church, thank him. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And that's exactly what Paul and Timothy are doing here, beginning in verse 3 of Colossians 1. Paul and Timothy are thankful to God because of the Colossians' faith in Christ and the love that the Colossians have for the saints. This isn't an instance of thanking the dog for dinner. This is an instance that we see in Paul and Timothy's faith of their trusting God. They're trusting God for these, these things to be thankful for. It's rightful thanksgiving. See, the faith that the Colossians have, it comes from God. From God the Father. The, the love to the saints that the Colossians have, it comes from God the Father. Paul and Timothy rightly direct their praise, their thanks to God for these good gifts. Friends, we should have that same attitude of thanksgiving. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Let's move into verse 5. As we move along into verse 5, you're going to see something peculiar, and we're going to spend a lot of time here to take some unpacking. All right? So keep your Bibles open. Look at it over and over and over again, because we're just going to be stuck there in verse 5. If you're following along your pew Bibles or really in any translation except for the NIV, here's what you're going to see. Verse 5 begins with the word, because. It's not a big deal all in itself, but in the context, this is kind of a big deal. Normally the word because, when, when do we use that word? We use because when we're answering the question why. Because gives a reason. It grounds an idea in its cause. So read with me again our text. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Are, are Paul and Timothy thanking God because the Colossians' hope is laid up for them in heaven? Or is there some connection between the Colossians' faith in Christ and love for the saints and the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. You understand the question? It's complicated, but the wording is complicated, so the question's going to be complicated. Now, if you're using a KJV or an ESV or a New American Standard or a Holman Christian Bible or any of the, the what we call the word-for-word -word translations, your translators are going to require that you figure out this puzzle for yourself. If you're using the NIV, though, They've gone ahead and answered the question for you. They've done your work for you. Let me read the NIV for the rest of you. I think you'll find it helpful, and then we're going to move along. This is their translation. They say, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. And then they explain that. They say, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. I think that's helpful. Because it rightly removes the confusion away from our, our translation and it allows us to see that somehow faith and love are rooted in the hope of the gospel. Paul's connecting these ideas as streams that flow from the headwaters, or, or better yet, 
gospel hope is like raw wool in the hands of God. Do you city people know what I'm talking about here? Raw wool in the hands of God, and God is spinning that wool into the threads of faith and love, threads that are braided together, and they're always brightly on display in the life of a Christian. That sounds nice, but how does that work? How is it that my faith in Christ and in my love for you, and I just met you, how does that originate in the hope that is stored up for me in heaven? Some of you are thinking, I don't care. I I don't care how it is that hope comes before faith and love. And here's the thing, and this is what you'll find with me. I want you to care. I I want you to ask God these questions. Let him show you in scripture how your salvation is being orchestrated by him. The more you know, the more thankful you'll be. My prayer for you is that you would long to see and that you would long to understand this because as we'll see next week in verses 9 and 10, when you better understand the wisdom of the gospel, the thoughts of God's mind, your life will begin to reflect that understanding. When you are given spiritual wisdom and understanding, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, Christian maturity is a direct result of the Spirit's working through understanding. God's given you a mind to use so that it would bring him glory. And Paul wants that for the Colossian church. And I want that maturity in Christ for us. And I'm asking God, when I pray for us as a church, I'm asking God that he would give us that. So how is it? How is it that faith in Christ and love for the saints are produced from the hope that is laid up in heaven. Now, Paul doesn't explain it here. He he doesn't explain it in this paragraph for us. He just writes it, almost assuming that we would understand it or maybe that we've already been taught it. Well, I didn't understand it, so I went on a hunt. Now, if you've read your New Testament, you'll see that faith, hope, and love appear together a lot. They're all over the place together as as three sisters, more more than you'd even expect. And a couple times, the Spirit reveals to us how these three virtues are connected together. And one of those passages is 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn with me there. I'm going to be there for just a minute. 1 Peter chapter 1, page 1014 in your Black Pew Bible. Peter sometimes has a way of of putting things a little differently than Paul does. His language is sometimes a little plainer, a little less flowery. So I want to show you how Peter describes how these three things work together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Let's look at this together for a moment. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's familiar, isn't it? God is being blessed, he's being thanked, he's being glorified here for what he's done. Let's see what he's done according to Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? 
answers. Because according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope. There it is. We're born again to a living hope through, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now let's pause. Do you see that somehow our hope is connected to some reality that springs out of Christ's resurrection? What is it? What do we have because of Christ's resurrection, church? We have the promise of our resurrection, don't we? Christ has been resurrected. He's defeated death. And so we know that we will be resurrected at his return. That's what we look forward to. That's the resurrection promise. It's Jesus Christ himself, and he's in heaven. He's the object of our hope. He's the source of this living hope that Peter's talking about. Now look at verse 4. What we'll see here is that Peter's going to describe in greater detail what this living hope looks like. He says it's an inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Our hope is in heaven. It's being kept in heaven. Paul says it's laid up. It's stored in heaven. Peter says it is kept in heaven. Do you see the similarities? Now look how Peter describes those who have been born again to this living hope. Look at verse 5. He says in verse 5 that these people, it's you and me, by God's power are being guarded through what? Faith. By God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if you're tracking with Peter, we're born again. He's told us that. We're born again from our old life of being without hope to a new life where we are fundamentally oriented towards this hope that is set before us. And faith, then, is what God gives us that helps us to live out a life characterized by that forward-looking hope. I'm going to say that again. Faith is what God gives us that enables us to live out a life characterized by an unseen hope that isn't going to be revealed until Christ's return. That's a bit wordy. I'm sorry. It is. We're going to unpack that as we, as we move along. In the meantime, in the meantime, if you're wondering, okay, I see faith, I see hope. Dustin, you said we would see love here. Where's the love? If you're wondering how Peter's going to tie love into this, look at the end of the chapter. 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Do you catch that? Why does Peter say we ought to love one another, church? We love one another because we've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let me translate that for you. You've been born again to eternal life. Now, where is your eternal life? 
It's laid up for you in heaven. That's why earlier he said you're born again to a living hope, to that eternal life that's laid up for you in heaven. When we're, we're born again, it's to that new life that is imperishable. You love, we love one another as Christians because our time is not limited. We have forever in front of us to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So now today, we can love freely. And living like that, trusting that our hope is in the future and it's not in today, that is living by faith. Faith keeps us looking forward to that hope. Faith and love then, what are they? They're characteristics of people who have a hope stored up in Christ. That's how Peter wants us to see the connection between faith, hope, and love. Faith and love are the fruit of being born again to a living hope. It's this same reasoning that Paul is drawing from in Colossians. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in that eternal life. It's in the new creation, and we're waiting on that. And we live like we're waiting on that. We live like that's real. Our faith is that God will be true to his promise. That he has eternal life in store for us. And a characteristic of people who live with that hope out in front and that faith in Christ, evidence among you that those things are true, is that we're a people who love one another. We love those who are with us, living towards that hope and living out that faith in Christ. Now, I want to take a minute and come down out of the ivory tower, okay? And let's look at this in real life. Broadly speaking, there's two ways to live as humans. One way is to live as if this life is all that there is. The other way is to live as if there is an eternity. This is what we call the secular religious divide. By, by, by definition, the word secular comes from the Latin word seculum. Not that difficult. It, it means that we are tied to this time. So someone who is on the secular side of that secular religious divide, it's someone who lives as if this life, this world is it. The Bible usually uses the word worldly for such a person. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's the ancient secular motto. Some of you may know this one, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's what we called it in the 60s. Well, you called it in the 60s. <laughs> YOLO. That's what they said five years ago. It's old news. Be true to yourself. That's what we say today. Because fundamentally in secularism, yourself, that's all there is. That's all that counts. That's secularism. Living in this age, for this age, and according to the rules and the values of this age. Now on the other side of that divide, we have religion. Most religions, not all, most, Religions are characterized 
via belief in some sort of afterlife. Some sort of belief that what happens in this life counts for some future life. I'm reducing that as much as I can. You might argue with that. That's okay. Christianity is one of these religions. And I want to pause. And some of you are saying Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Christianity is a religion. Okay? A religion is a set of beliefs about the world around us and beyond. That's what Christianity is. That's what a religion is. We are a religion. It's okay to admit that. It's okay to move on from sayings that were never in the Bible to begin with. It's worked for a while. Let's retire it. We as Christians are, this is, what, this is where we're unique. We are unique in what we believe. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we're not unique in believing that there is more existence than this life only. We are on the religion side of the religion, religious, secular divide. Those are the two ways. Those are the two ways to live. The secular way, as if this life is all there is, all of our hope is bound up here and now, and then there's the religious way. There is another life, and the hope is in the future. If it helps, and maybe it doesn't, because analogies don't always help, but, but if it does, think of all of humanity on this plateau. And it overlooks a, a giant, foggy, bottomless canyon, and you can't see five feet off the edge of the plateau because of all the fog and mist. You got that picture in your mind? So secularism is this. It's, it says that the side of the canyon that you're on, that plateau, that's all there is. There is no other side of the canyon because you can't see it. And if you can't see it, it's not there. The secular, the worldly live preoccupied with all of the stuff on the plateau, on this side of the canyon. I have to entertain myself now. I have to accumulate money and wealth for myself now. I have to have this sexual pleasure now. I have to escape from this difficulty now. This life is all there is. So I absolutely must have my best life now. Because all my hope is here. All, everything I ever wanted is here. Religion is believing that there is another side to the canyon. And the various religions are characterized by this, how they get to the other side. The vast majority, all, really, except for one, they bridge that gap with good works. That's why Muslims and Mormons make really good neighbors. Their eternity depends on it. That's how they think they're going to get across the canyon, by bringing you cookies. Their faith is lived out fundamentally in their own ability to get across by taking careful steps as they walk across Good Works Bridge, making right choices, doing good things, worshiping just the right way, and, and praying in which way is east? Praying in, in just the right direction and at the right times of day, following the right rules. As Christians, though, we know that canyon is far too wide. It is, is far too wide for any person to get across on their own, on their own power. And we're far too weak and we're far too sinful. We know, we know that the canyon is one that can only be covered by God himself. 
So we are different. We're different than every other religion in that Jesus Christ, holy God, holy man, Jesus is that bridge. He is our access to eternity. Jesus is the object of our faith. When we show faith, this is what we're showing. We show that we're relying on Christ's work to get us across. We outwardly live and outwardly show that Jesus is our access to eternal life. That's faith. Faith is trusting that it is Jesus Christ that gets us from our worldly separation from God to eternity with God. Not just trusting by saying, I believe. Not just praying a prayer and then living out the rest of our lives on the plateau. That's not faith. That's lip service. Faith is more visible than that. It's not saying, I believe that bridge will hold me up. What's it doing? It's walking out on the bridge. And showing that you believe that the bridge will hold you up, that it will get you across. It's walking out onto that bridge with such confidence, such assurance, such conviction, and something you can't even see that this walk characterizes your entire life. A life of faith is marked by all of the different ways of living out on that bridge and not on the plateau. It should look different. Christian, do you have that faith? Are you being saved by that faith? Look at your life. Is there evidence of that kind of faith in your life? We're going to see later on in Colossians what this faith looks like, what it looks like to walk out on that bridge. But for now... In this morning's text, if you want to see a beyond a reasonable doubt evidence that this faith is operating in your life, you know what you look for? This is what Paul looked for in the churches he wrote to. This is what Jesus looked for among his disciples. This is what, what John was looking for in the book of 1 John and what Peter's looking for in First and Second Peter. Do you know what the evidence of authentic faith is? Love. It's love for the saints. Do you love the people Christ loves? A hope-directed faith is proven to be authentic by brotherly love. Faith and love always accompany one another. Always, always, always. We are saved by faith alone, but it is never faith all by herself. She always walks with love. Jesus Christ, think about it this way. Jesus Christ, the author, the perfecter of our faith, he showed his faith by going to the cross, the ultimate act of love. His hope was in the resurrection. His faith was in God. He was trusting that God the Father would raise him up from the dead. But that faith could only be shown to be true and authentic through the ultimate act of love, death on the cross. He had to go to the cross. As Christ's followers, we show that we are trusting in Christ's work through a life of faith. And we live that out through brotherly love and sisterly love, love for the saints, love for other Christians. And that's what Paul saw on display 
in the Colossian church. And that's why he thanked God. And friends, that's what we're called to as a church. We're to love other Christians. The difficult ones. The ugly ones. The ones who have hurt you. The ones you don't like. The old ones. And the middle-aged ones. And the young ones. And the weird. And the beautiful. And the ugly. And the, I already said that. But them. <laughs> and, and the sick. And the healthy. And the black. And the brown. And the tan. And the lighter tan. And the peach. And the white. And the pasty even. We're to love all of them. There are no exceptions to Christian love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is the most visible evidence of our faith. It is the brightest fruit of a life whose hope is in Christ. Why? Why did God choose that one to be the fruit that he's looking for? Because this love, brotherly love, the love for the saints, it shows more than anything else. It shows that we are becoming more like Christ. His spirit is working in us and through us is loving those whom he loves. That's brotherly love. Look at verse 8. I'm going to skip down a little bit. Paul's excited because Epaphras has made known to him the Colossians' love. How? Love in the spirit. Christian love is the most visible act of faith. That is the fruit of hope in Christ. And that's how they fit together. And that's why Paul is thankful to God. That's why his thanksgiving is rightly directed. Because God is working through this church. That brings us to the second part of verse 5 and into verse 6. Hope is bearing the fruit of faith and love among the Colossians because they heard about it, Paul says. They heard about it in the word of truth, the gospel. And it hasn't just gone to them. Paul is overflowing with joy here. Look what he says. He, he has to remind them there in verse 6. It's not just you Colossians who have this hope that is bearing fruit. This gospel hope that has gone to you has gone into the whole world. Into the whole world and everywhere it goes, it's bearing fruit. And it's increasing just like it did and does among the Colossians. This gospel hope, this eternal life purchased for us by the blood of Christ it's a universal hope. It's not just for the Colossians. It's for all if they'll receive it. One word of, of application here as we transition into the last section. As we think about Independence Day as a church this week and what it means to be a Christian in America and, and the ways that God has provided for us and what we should be thankful for, here's something to chew on this week. Do you know where the gospel is spreading fastest in the world. Here are the five countries, top five, where the hope of the gospel is bearing fruit and it's increasing faster than anywhere else. Number one, Nepal. Two, China. Three, the United Arab Emirates. Four, Saudi Arabia. Five, Qatar. Five countries where it is really hard to be a Christian. Five countries where becoming a Christian means your family might disown you. 
five countries that God is blessing, friends. America is not in the top 20. Actually, no country in North America or Europe is in the top 20 for growth rate. Statistically, the places where we are freest to worship, places like the USA and Great Britain and Canada and Germany, the freest places are the places that are actually becoming more secular. We can be thankful to God's kindness towards us, for his gentleness towards us, and allowing us to live and worship without persecution. We can be thankful for that. That is an answer to the prayer that Paul says Timothy should be praying, that we might live a peaceful life under our government. But listen. As we think about where the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing and what it means to be blessed by God, we need to recognize that our freedom as Americans doesn't mean our country has been shown a particular blessing. We're free to worship. That's true. But listen, that freedom to worship also means that people are free to worship Allah and Buddha and Mother Earth or themselves, and that freedom can't be mistaken as a blessing from God. Rather, that liberty, listen, it's a sign of the patience of God. That's a gift, but it's a sign of his patience, his forbearance. Praise God for his patience. 1 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you and me not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our religious freedom in America is a sign of God's patience, and his patience is purposeful. When Paul said we need to steward it well, he's right. We do. His patience is meant to remind us that, that there are those still here that God is saving. There are people here whom God is longing to call to repentance. They are our neighbors. They are our co-workers and our classmates and our family members. Do you know how God is going to call them? Through the message of the gospel delivered to them. Proclaimed to them. And if it isn't you or I that loves our neighbor enough to deliver that message to them, it's going to be someone. Maybe it will be missionaries from China. Maybe, maybe they'll come from Nepal or Saudi Arabia. It's going to be someone because God's people are the means that God uses to spread his message of redemption and hope. God is not willing that any of his people would perish, but they would all come to repentance. So let's not use God's patience as an excuse for neglect. How did this gospel get to the Colossians? They heard it. Paul says this twice to them, once in verse 5, once in verse 6. It's important. He says, you heard it. You heard it. The Colossians heard about the hope of the gospel because it came to them. It was announced to them. This hope began bearing fruit and increasing among them because they heard it and they understood it. 
They understood the grace of God in truth. How will anyone believe in him of whom they've never heard? You heard that before? Romans 10? How will anyone believe in him of whom they have never heard? How can someone know about the hope available to them in Christ if we don't tell them? Epaphras took it to the Colossians. Paul took it to the Ephesians and everywhere across the Mediterranean. Someone brought it to you. I'm bringing it this morning to you. Hear it. Understand it. Read it. Study your Bibles. Grow in the knowledge of God. Let that growth come from the hope that is always ahead of you, not a hope that is in today or in this life, but is in the next life, in eternal life, that hope that's laid up for you in heaven. Walk towards that. Walk in faith, a faith that is lived out in love that shows that your hope is not in this life. Let others see that the Spirit's working in you. Something supernatural is happening in you. And then share with them the hope that you have. And watch that hope bear fruit in their lives and increase in their lives. Friends, this is the Christian life. This is what it's all about. This is what should characterize us as Christians. This is what it looks to walk as Christians. Would you pray with me?